0: Welcome again to Faith Church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians is over to the right-hand side of your Bible in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's letters. Today we're continuing a question that we're just pausing to ask for two weeks as we're in a moment uh, as a culture, as a church, where uh, we are at a point where we might be tempted to Divide where it will be perhaps more difficult to stick together. Last week, we were asking how do we relate to our government in the midst of a mask mandate. We looked to Christ in the scriptures and saw what we found there. And this week, we're just gonna ask more broadly, how do we stick together? What's the glue that holds us together, Faith Church? And what we're gonna see in Ephesians is we stick together as we stand in Christ, walking together in union with him. I think of a, a time I was, I was doing bar ministry, uh, reaching out in South City, St. Louis, uh, to uh, folks who would hang out in a bar. And I went there about once a week, and once a month I did an event there, and we would talk about uh, a topic related to the Christian faith, uh, and, and just invite people to, to bring their questions and to, to discuss Jesus, to hope to build a bridge for the gospel. Well, while I was there getting to know these dear people who spent time, perhaps some of them too much time, at this local bar, I would hear their stories. And one thing that was sort of uh, uh, perhaps a a saying you might hear when someone talked about uh, his relationship at home would be talking about the old ball and chain. Have you ever heard of that phrase, the old ball and chain? Maybe in the 21st century that's a bit offensive. I imagine to wives it's always been offensive, but Uh, The old ball and chain, you might hear that. How's the old ball and chain? Because there's this sense that someone might feel who wants to be able to do what they want to do. They want to be able to go to the bar whenever they want to go to the bar. They want to go to the golf course whenever they want to go to the golf course, but they've got this ball and chain stuck to them and they've got to stick with them faithfully. I think of the irony, though, of that statement because I think about myself and I think about what a mercy it's been to have limits put on me, to have a seatbelt put on me, to have a ball and a chain slow me down. I think of in college when I was really learning about grace and I was kind of running with it in a direction that Paul, who's writing the letter we're reading now in another place, he would have said, by no means to me, I was sinning all the more that grace might abound all the more and I had a friend who came to me and was just like, David, what are you doing? What are you doing? And that friendship, that ball and chain drew me back to sanity and to Christ, Christina, time and again, freeing me to follow Jesus. The Ephesian church that Paul's writing to, they are experiencing this kind of difficulty. They want to run in all sorts of different directions. They wanna do what they wanna do. And there are all sorts of different people that God has brought together as one. People with cultural difference. Gentiles and Jews with a historic enmity, hatred between them, brought together into one place because they're all looking to Jesus now. You have people that are still tempted and often walking in the ways they formerly walked. We'll hear about that in the next section of Ephesians if we were to go on in chapter four, verse 17 and onward. Walking in the old ways. In chapter five, we hear about walking in darkness. These are still temptations, live temptations, people who are earnestly strong in the faith and in walking in Christ, and people who are wandering and struggling, even failing, all coming together. People who struggle with anger and bitterness, people that struggled with slander, gossip, unforgiving ways, hardness of heart, all coming together. Think of how many of these things, how many of these individuals could pull the church apart. In small part and in large part, all of these things would threaten the unity that Christ had purchased for this church. See, these people, and I would suggest we can have this too, had a misplaced eagerness. They were eager to get what they wanted. They were eager to make the church more like them. They were eager to guard their preferences. They were not particularly eager to guard the unity that Christ had purchased with his blood. So how do we stick together when everything tears us apart? I suggest to you that we stick, as we might say in the Midwest, we stick because we done got stuck. Chapter 4, verse 1, either for a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word bond in verse 3 shares a common root with prisoner, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord. If you heard this word in the original language, you're a Greek listener, you would hear Chains, you would see chains in your mind. Paul is chained for the Lord, willingly forgoing freedom so that he might serve Christ and make him known. And now you all, and these are all y'alls, folks. These aren't you singulars. These are y'alls. Y'all maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond, in the chain. Of peace. You have a new ball and chain. You done got stuck. That's what Christ has done. That's what makes it possible for these people to stand together. Paul's been speaking about this wonder that God could bring together. He's actually invented words, Paul has, in this letter to talk about the bringing together that God has done in Christ. He's made us alive together with Christ. You who were were dead walking in the sins and the trespasses in which you once walked. God has made alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. We're his workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should what? That we should walk in them. And he has given us peace. If you read uh, verses 11 to the end of of chapter 2, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles primarily, but the Jewish listeners would also be there. And he speaks to the Gentile listeners, which would be me, probably most of you. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Strangers. There was a time Perhaps even for some of you when it was strange to hear about the promises of Jesus. It was strange to hear about all these Bible words. It was strange to imagine sticking together with people who disagreed with you. Why would you do that? You could have a lot better of a time in 21st century America in Loveland. There's a lot of fun stuff to do off on your own. Go to the mountains. Why stick together with a bunch of people coming from different backgrounds who likely disagree with you on a whole host of issues? Well, here's why. Because now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Four times peace is repeated in this passage. Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. In him, y'all are being made into a dwelling place for God by the spirit, Paul says. You done got stuck when you looked to Jesus, when the spirit awakened you to new life. You weren't awakened alone, you were awakened into this new family. This family of people From all nations and all backgrounds, Christ has made it possible for you to be together. He has killed the hostility when he died on the cross. And so that's what we stand in. But the thing about Ephesians, the thing about the New Testament, the calling of Christ is not to be static, not merely to stand, but to walk. To walk. Our discipleship is dynamic. There's something fixed. We look to what Christ has done in the gospel. We sing about it Sunday to Sunday. We'll sing about it for eternity. But we're called to grow and walk with Christ. And that's how we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But How do we, how do, we do that? Uh, there's basically three uh, three portions of this section of Ephesians that we're gonna look at that that show how we walk together, how we could maintain that unity. And the first is by pursuing Christ's character, walking in his character, walking in his truth then in verses four to six, and then walking in his gifts and service in verses seven to 16. So we'll look at that together, but let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you, Lord, for, for your word. We're thankful that you speak Lord, I pray that that I might be clear today and true to your word. Lord, I pray that we could see just a vision of who Jesus is and who he's calling us to be. We ask that in his name. Amen. Paul writes I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. In reverse order, we see nearly the same exact words, a word that's nearly the same for humility or lowliness and the very same word for gentleness. We see that when Christ speaks of his own heart in Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, Jesus says these, these words that are so wonderful to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The heart of Christ is gentle and humble. This is who he's revealed himself to be. Dane Ortland writes helpfully about this in a book he released a couple years ago called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. He wrote... This is not who Christ is to everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who come to him, who take his yoke upon them, who cry to him for help. And Ortland reminds us of the paragraph before in Matthew 11. The paragraph before these words from Jesus gives us a picture of how Jesus handles the impenitent, meaning the ones who would come to him with pride, arrogance, unwillingness to be moved by him, unwilling to repent, Jesus would say, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Gentle and lowly does not mean mushy and frothy. But he goes on, but for the penitent, his heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. For lowly Gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts toward others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. Paul is saying to the Ephesian church, pursue the heart of Christ. Walk together, worthily, pursuing the heart of Christ with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Think of Christ, there's a moment when he says, how long will I have to bear with this generation? the sinless one in the midst of sinners, the one bringing God's holiness and truth and righteousness in such a way that wouldn't just clobber them and smash them, but to serve them, to lift them up and to save them and free them. This one comes in their midst and bears with all of these different sorts of people, patiently. Think of the different people in Ephesus, all of the places they're coming from, all of the ways in which they sin against one another and against God, bearing with one another. And this demands a new eagerness, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I think of Proverbs, Proverbs 6. We see that the Lord loves unity in this passage. We see the, the Lord loves unity when we sing Psalm 133 together, as we heard it read earlier. And we know that the Lord hates. He hates it when this is violated. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Many of these are spoken of in Ephesians I'm in Proverbs 6, 17 now. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And here's the seventh, the one which is an abomination to the Lord, one who sows discord among brothers. The one who is more eager for her preferences, the one who's more eager to get his way than he is for preserving the unity of the spirit. The Lord hates it when you do that. He hates it when I do that. He has something so much better for us. So I ask you, whose character are you pursuing, Faith Church? We become that which we behold. Paul has invited the Ephesians to look to Christ. He's praying that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened to the riches of their inheritance in the saints, that they might have a true vision of Christ and who he is. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth is given, the one who is the head of the church and her savior. He's longing that you would look to him. I want to look to him. But I think of the kind of person that I've wanted to become in the past, the one who could list off my accomplishments, tell you all the great things that I've done, how I you know, I know more than you about this or that, the one upsmanship. You know this, but I know this. You can do this, but I can do this. Does this come out at all? These tendencies, a heavy-handedness, a meanness. We know that the end's when we act like the ends justify the means, we might win in the short run. We might be successful if we live like that. We can be impatient and expect instant change, lord that over people around us, and it might get results, but you will miss the heart of Christ. And you may come to him at the last day and you'll tell him about all the great stuff that you did. And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because the thing you were chasing was never me. Look to Jesus, faith church. Look to him. Look how he's offered himself to you. Humble and lowly. Look to him now, because if you wouldn't look to him, you might find yourself being opposed by him. He might say, woe to you. When you are lording your preferences over others, when you're dividing his body, look to him. He's purchased peace for you. He would give you his character. Secondly, we don't only walk in his character, we walk in his truth. We walk in his truth. He's the Lord of truth. Note these words that Paul says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith. And here, faith referring not to our believing, but to the content of the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3, it's talking about the actual message of the gospel. It's talking about the actual truth of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. This section is difficult for us and for many of our neighbors though because Paul uses things like one to refer to truth. The, a definite article, not a truth, the truth. And that might seem offensive to some of us. I think of a story uh, that I read. Um, I've read with my children. I've read many times The Silver Chair. It's one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And there's a moment where Jill Pole, a young lady, she gets separated. And, it, and it's sort of as a result of her folly, but she's separated. And she's going to die of thirst if she doesn't find water soon. She's terribly thirsty. And all of a sudden, she comes to a stream, but she's faced with a, what seems like a terrible decision at the time. She was thirstier than ever before. She didn't rush forward to drink, though, because as she stood there, by the stream lay the lion, this great lion, Aslan, who is so much like Jesus as we read the pages of the Chronicles of Narnia. But Jill Pole thinks internally, if I run away, it'll be after me in a moment. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. And suddenly Aslan speaks, If you're thirsty, you may drink. And for a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I... Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? Then you will die of thirst. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. many of our neighbors, maybe perhaps some of you, some of your friends, some of your family members, the message that there is one truth, there is one hope, there is one faith, there is one Savior, Jesus. It seems deeply arrogant or offensive. But what we find is that there's true refreshment in him and there's no other stream There's a river who runs through the city of Zion and there's no other stream. And we're not being arrogant when we say this, I hope, as we're chasing the heart of Christ and his character. We're just speaking as people who were dying of thirst. It's like an umpire who calls a strike. You hope he's a good umpire and he's honest, right? So let's talk about an honest umpire. The umpire's calling it like he sees it. And it's like, in the words of C.S. Lewis, we, we see Christianity now as we see that the sun has risen, not just because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. This truth fits in this world. This truth makes sense of us, it makes sense of our lives and our purpose and our hopes, of our failings, of our yearnings. It's the truth and we can't see any other way. Yes, we have particular beliefs as a church. We have a well, and the water is good, and we invite you to come and drink. But our neighbor might say, doctrine divides. Why do you talk about this doctrine when when believing in these particular doctrines will divide us? It is true. Doctrine can divide, and the statement doctrine divides is a, is a doctrinal statement as well. Yes. But I wonder what do you bring with you when you come to Christianity, when you come to these statements of the one hope, the one faith, the one God? Perhaps you bring the sort of things that I learned when I was in college. I learned to ask certain questions. When I heard faith claims, when I heard truth claims, I learned to ask questions like, who benefits? Who benefits if I believe this is true? I learned to ask questions like, what's the range of interpretation on this issue or in this passage? What's the utility? What's the effect if I believe these things? What will be the impact? But a question that I was not often encouraged to ask was, is it true? Is it true? And there we have the question, the risk, that we invite you to ask with us to come and drink. And I would challenge you, faith church, that it's not just our neighbors who would make the statement, doctrine divides, who struggle with this. Paul, as he was writing to these people, a few verses below is going to tell them that God gave you gifts, certain leaders, who would help keep you from being tossed to and fro, verse 14, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, it's not only other than Christians who can be tossed about. There's two ditches. There is the being tossed about. There's succumbing to the wave and just going along with whatever wave comes along, whatever new idea, whatever fashionable thought. Yes, you could be taken by it. But you can also be the sort of person who tries to hold back every wave. Have you ever stood on a beach in the waves? Could you, could you imagine stopping the wave, right? And stopping every wave on every beachhead. Some Christians, it seems, are mentored and have chosen a posture in the world where they're going to try to stop every wave and they're just running around frenetically at every single new idea. It's like whack-a-mole. And they would tell you, they would exhaust you. They'd make you an anxious, fearful wreck because you have to know everything about all of these new waves of thought. You have to master them. You have to be ready to respond to them accurately, precisely. You have to know all this stuff (laughs) so that you can defend yourself against all the waves. And in the process, your eyes are taken away from the truths that are our drink from our savior who gave his flesh for our food and his blood for our drink. There's one body and one spirit and we forget to hear that as we're running around, chasing down every mole to whack it. You were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I don't hear this on the tongues of the fear And so, whether it's the people who would say you have to believe in Jesus and drink from the well of this political platform, you have to believe in Jesus and agree with me about whether to homeschool or send to public school or private school or classical school, et cetera. Jesus plus this other well. Whatever it may be, doctrinal hair hair splitting, Paul is calling us as a church to be rooted to stand in this truth, not to die on every single hair-splitting hill, but to die on the hill of Christ as Lord. He died to make us one body. He animates us with his own life, one spirit. There is one God and Father who is over all and true all and in all of his children. We'll die on those hills together because he's worthy. We walk together in his character and in Christ's truth. And thirdly, we serve in his gifts. Paul speaks about grace given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He quotes from Psalm 68, 19. It's a a psalm of victory, a song that God's people would have sung together to sing of God's faithfulness and power. There's an interesting note in here just to observe, though. In Psalm 68, 19, in the original Hebrew and also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and received gifts among men. That's what it says in the original of Psalm 68, 19. Scholars have wrestled with what Paul's doing here. And the best I can make of it is that Paul is... He's enamored with the kind of Lord that we serve. He is not an exacting, tribute-taking, conqueror God. He is a God who is a conqueror, yes, but when he conquers, he gives. He's a giving Lord. He gives gifts among men. And here, these gifts are given that the body might be built up that we might attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's in the moments when we as a body use our gifts for service, our ordinary gifts, and the moments when the Lord gives us supernatural gifts. I'm not gonna go a lot into that today, but when he gives those, when we use them for his glory, according to his word, all of his gifts, it's like our neighbors get a vision of Jesus on earth, the body working and walking together as we serve together. One thing that can pull a body apart at times is when folks can sit and see that their preferences are not met, that something did not work or go well, and they will come and complain. The thing did not work. The thing did not go well. I did not like the thing. I will probably gently say something like, thank you for taking note of that. I think that you would be a great help to us. When are you available to volunteer on that team? I'm not kidding. Because as a pastor, I am supposedly one of these gifts to you. I hope I'm a gift. (laughs) I'm supposedly one of the gifts to you not to give you just what you want all the time, but to equip you for service. That's what Paul said. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service or ministry. Those words are the same, ministry or service, for building up the body of Christ. Now, apostles and prophets, I would suggest to you, Uh, particularly, let's start with apostles. In the days of Jesus, these are his commissioned, authorized spokesmen who spoke in his name with his authority. We have their words written for us in the scriptures of the New Testament. But if you hear someone claim to be an apostle today, I just suggest to you, I'd be nervous. (laughs) Similarly with a prophet, prophets throughout the time of the scriptures and into the New Testament we see prophets. But when folks claim to prophesy, there's, a, there's an old sense, and sometimes the scriptures use this, prophesying simply in the sense of proclaiming God's truth from his word. The Puritans especially would speak in that way, of prophesying. But some people are speaking of, of, of new events or of new revelation from God. And Deuteronomy chapter 13 talks about how to test this kind of thing. And so I would also be nervous if someone declares themselves a prophet. Just wait and see what happens. But with evangelists and with pastors and teachers, these are still at work today, and I'm one of them seeking to build you up so that you could serve Jesus. And so here's what I wanna just say right now. Uh, Myself and the other shepherds here at Faith Church, the elders among us, the staff who are helping us shepherd, you should hold us accountable to that. Our role here is not merely to give you what you want, not to put on a show. Our goal is to see you equipped for the work of ministry. <laughs> so hold us accountable for that. But also when we offer you the pathways that you might grow and exercise your gifts, I hope you'd take hold of it. When there's a First Steps class, when, when Pastor Jim offers a class on the faith and being equipped for Service as elders and as deacons, I hope you'd take it. When there's an opportunity to serve our neighbors, to welcome them, I hope you'd, you'd take it as you can, as you're able, so that we might show our neighbors and that we might become a picture of the fullness of Christ, His truth and character at work in us. So, how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in a season where everything seems to tear us apart? We walk together in Christ. There was a moment, I was leading an elders meeting. This was about a year and a half into ministry. And leading an elders meeting, we had had an Easter service where in response to the congregation's desire, nearly unanimous desire, we incorporated some contemporary elements into the worship service and we sang some songs like how great is our God in the Easter service. True songs reflective of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same truth. But there's an elder who was the chair of the worship committee who was not especially pleased. And at the elders' meeting, we're sitting down there where the leaders of the church were, were called to lead with the mind of Christ, to shepherd the flock of God. And there at the meeting in the worship committee report, he begins, and I can remember it and feel the moment still. I have something stuck in my craw, pastor. And at that moment, I'm, I'm nervous. And I'm trying to think back. Okay, what do I do? And so... What came out of me was, I have to shepherd this team. I have to say something true and loving right now. And so I said, dear brother, right now is not the time to share what's stuck in your craw. It's time to give the worship committee report. He did not like that answer. (laughs) He proceeded to leave the room I remember chasing him down the hall. And I said something like, dear brother, you are an elder. You are valued. We are less without you. Leaving this room is a very serious statement. Please, please come back. He came back. Finished the meeting. We were able to shake hands. It wasn't the last time we crossed hairs, but We shook hands and we'd keep shaking hands and we'd keep working together, bearing with one another, him with me and I with him. But I wonder today, are you eager to simply tell the person who's wrong off and let them have it? Are you eager to get your way and to win, to defend your turf? Are you eager... To run when it's hard, to be silent when others are being harmed and no one's defending them. Are you eager, faith church, to know Jesus? Are you eager that he should be known? There's a small step that Paul gives us here in this passage that we could grow up in Christ. He says, Don't be tossed about by the waves, but rather speak the truth in love, and by speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How do we learn to speak like this? How, How do we learn to talk like Christ? I would suggest again that we go back to Jesus. We learn the way he spoke, the way he inhabited a moment, when he was near somebody who was terribly wrong and loved them in his words, sometimes with some really tough love, sometimes with a very gentle word, depended upon the moment, he's a wise, wise savior and Lord. He waited three years of ministry to finally say, woe to you, patient, even with the most cantankerous How do we learn to talk like this? We look to Jesus and his character. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he says. He is the fountain that we can come and drink. So I invite you to go there, Faith Church, to stay there. In this time of division and in every moment forward, we stand in Christ, stuck together with his ball and chain, the peace he's purchased for us, together, and we'll walk together in him, speaking the truth in love. And we, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, will see the body growing so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us this vision for our church that we might cling to Christ and what he's done. that we might see his love manifest, his fullness here, real, tangible. Teach us, Lord, how to do this. Hold us back from being the worst that we could be. And more, Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be. Help us to grow up in Christ. We ask that in his name, amen.